Good morning. Welcome, welcome to those of you here, to those of you joining us online. It is so great to have you with us today. As you heard, we are in the middle of this series called Rooted. And beyond just a Sunday morning time, this is really about a whole small group experience that you can be a part of here at Browncroft called Rooted. My wife and myself went through Rooted as a couple with our small group, and it was fantastic. We absolutely loved it. <clears throat> Pardon me. I ate some almonds before I came up here. Uh, one of the things that we love so much about Rooted is the fact that um, it is about experiencing God more than it is just about knowing information about God. It's about experiencing him and growing closer to the people who you have in your group with you. We got to experience that ourselves, and so I would highly encourage you, uh, if you are sitting here, if you are online, for you to get involved in Rooted as it launches. Okay, enough of the promo on that. Hopefully today will whet your appetite a little bit more for this. So, uh, as I was thinking about my talk this morning, it occurred to me that there are some things in every culture that are kind of hidden to us about following Jesus. And an image came to mind. It was one of these. Uh, I don't know if you guys remember this from the 90s, right? If any of you have walked through a mall in the 1990s, you remember a picture like this. 3D artwork, right? And I want to give a special shout out to my uh, in-laws, uh, Nick and Carolyn Vency over here, because they let me borrow this masterpiece from their basement. So, um, so here it is. And, and for those of you unfamiliar with one of these masterpieces, what you would do is you would go into the mall or another, you know, state fair, or whatever. You would look at this and ordinarily you would just walk right by that, right? But, but this, if you focused on it in a certain way and you really stared intently at it, all of a sudden this image started to come out and pop out of the picture, and everybody was like, whoa, this is real, whoa, holy cow. Now, it was the 90s. We thought all sorts of stuff was cool. But this one right here, this is an F-117 Nighthawk. This is a jet plane in here. Most of us don't see the jet plane, right? But the fact is, the picture, there's a picture underneath the picture. I think for a lot of us, when it comes to Christianity, uh, in our culture, if there was a picture that's hidden for us, I think it, underneath here, it would be called suffering. Because most of us don't like to acknowledge that. And in some ways, our whole American view of suffering doesn't take into account Jesus. And if you look through the Bible, though, you can't help but realize that it's full of stories of people who are suffering and God meeting people in the midst of their suffering. And so that's what we're going to talk a little bit about today. But that butts up against our, our views in America sometimes, right? Because we like to to pride ourselves in having the right to life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. 
And those things are great. I am so thankful that I live in a country where those things are, are a part of what we believe in. But sometimes we take that to the extreme, and what that ends up becoming is I'm just going to live for my comfort, and my comfort becomes the top priority. I was watching a baseball game last night, just briefly, and isn't it weird now, in, during this pandemic time, even baseball games, you're watching this baseball game, right? I'm sitting there watching the game, and they're piping in crowd noise from the outside. There's nobody in the stands, and yet we're piping in crowd noise because why? Because, well, it would be uncomfortable if we didn't have crowd noise there. What would we do? There's this cognitive dissonance that we experience because we know that there, there's no one there, but, but we can't handle that right? And in America, sometimes that's how we live. We live in this cognitive dissonance. I know they're suffering, but I'm not sure if I really want to acknowledge it. Well, today we're going to lean into it together and uh, hopefully learn some lessons from Jesus in the process. We're going to look at a passage in Mark, Mark 5. So uh, if you have your Bibles or your phones, you can turn to that. And I will set this passage up for you ahead of that. So Mark 5, it's going to be 21 to 43. Um, before this all happens, before the scene that we're going to be looking at today happens, Jesus has just been going back and forth across the Sea of Galilee and performing some amazing miracles. His disciples were all in the boat with him. And a huge storm comes up and Jesus speaks to the wind and the waves and all of a sudden they stop. And then they cross the lake and, and they meet this man who is possessed by a bunch of demons and he speaks to this man and the demons go away and he's totally healed. And now the disciples go back to the other side of the lake again and they find themselves in the middle of this huge crowd and Jesus is again encountering people who are suffering. And so let's pick up the story there. We're going to actually walk through this a chunk at a time. So I'm not going to read the whole story to you right off the bat. We're going to take it a chunk at a time together. Mark, 20, Mark 5, 21 to 43. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. All right, let's push the pause button right there for a second. The first thing we're going to learn in this passage about suffering is that suffering exposes our lack of control. Suffering exposes our lack of control. I don't like that too much. I don't know about you, but that makes me really uncomfortable. The name Jairus, this is something that I didn't know before I started exploring this passage a little deeper. The name Jairus actually means God enlightens, which means another way God illuminates, or another way for the sake of our talk here this morning, God makes the picture clearer. 
So God is the one that can illuminate those things in our lives, that we, places we don't want to go, things that we don't want to see. God illuminates those. And so the whole, the whole sermon this morning is kind of based around that concept that, that of Jairus. And here is this synagogue leader, this man who has done everything right, the ultimate insider, right? I mean, to become a synagogue leader, it was the combination of a religious leader, a senator, and a professional athlete in terms of popularity of the people in that culture. He would have been regarded as someone who everybody looked up to and respected immensely. And so here's Jairus, and he's done everything right, and yet his daughter is there, and she's dying, and she's suffering. And Jairus realizes that he is completely out of control. There's nothing that he can do to save her. And here is this ultimate insider who gets to the point where he realizes it's not about what I can do, it's about what Jesus can do, and he humbles himself. Now, this is so unusual, because sometimes in the Bible we can picture the religious leaders of Jesus' day as kind of this, this, uh, I don't know, we kind of paint them in a bad light sometimes. But what Jairus is doing is he's showing that, that yes, even even the religious insiders of the day could come to the place where they humbled themselves before Jesus and fell at his feet. And that's what he does. And maybe you're here this morning and you've been following Jesus for a long time. And maybe you've been doing everything the right way, but you still find yourself in a position where you're suffering and you realize that life is out of control. Well, there's hope because Jesus gets up and he says, okay, Jairus, I'm going to follow you to your home. And that's really, really good news for Jairus in this moment. But there's a plot twist and that's where we're going next here. Let's, let's read on in this passage together. Mark 5, 25 is where we're going to pick this up. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors, and she had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that the power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding around against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who'd done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. So in the middle of this story, there's another story which is really fascinating story when you compare them together. 
Because this story will illuminate for us the fact that suffering reveals the source of our identity. When we're experiencing suffering, it reveals the source of our identity. Let me, let me unpack that a little bit with you. Look at this woman. She isn't even given a name. Jairus not only has his name, he has his position, right? This woman is simply called a woman. And in that day and age, in this culture, that already put her a step behind. She was a woman. But not only that, she's unnamed. She is a nobody. She is the ultimate outsider. And why is she the ultimate outsider? She's the ultimate outsider because of her condition that she's lived with for 12 years. It's not just physical pain that she's endured. She's endured physical pain every day for 12 years years. But not only that, she's endured financial pain. She's, she's given everything she has to the doctors and they still have not been able to make her better. And then on top of that, and probably the biggest thing in all of this is that she endured the emotional pain of being isolated from her community for 12 long years. Some of us have gone through quarantine, right? For a few weeks. Maybe for some of us, it's even a few months of quarantine. But can you imagine being in this woman's shoes for 12 years, in that state of total isolation for that long and the desperation that wells up within her? And she thinks, maybe, just maybe, if I reach out and touch Jesus' cloak, maybe then I can be healed. He can heal me. And she does. And the power goes out from Jesus and she is healed in that moment. And Jesus stops in his tracks, in the middle of something else that he's doing, he stops and he says, whoa, what just happened? And I've always wondered what this experience was like. We aren't given the details of this, right? Uh, but we know this, that Jesus realized that it, that it happened. I always, for me, it reminds me of Star Wars, right? There's a disturbance in the force. That's how I en en envision this. I, 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 it's a crazy way of looking at it. But that's the, only, that's the only paradigm I have. Somehow Jesus knows that she has, power has gone out from him. Now, here's the question for you. Why does Jesus stop? I used to have this thought in my mind that maybe Jesus stops so that other people will look and say, wow, look at the amazing miracle that I did. But that's, <laughs> that's not Jesus. And the more I looked at this passage, I'm like, that, that, that's not what he's trying to get people to see here. There's something deeper that Jesus is trying to do. And Jesus is trying to expose this woman's act of faith in front of the whole community. Because you know what he wants? He wants not only to alle alleviate her physical suffering, he wants to alleviate her emotional suffering. And if she admits to before everybody else that she's been healed, then guess what? She's accepted into the community again. Not only that, I want you to look at this one phrase that Jesus looked at. It's a phrase that Jesus says. I'd never seen it before, before I started to look into this passage again, Okay. And this is a redefinition of identity. Here's a woman who has been identified by her ailment, by her disease, 
for 12 years. And what does Jesus say to her? Daughter, ah, go in peace. Your faith has healed you. Jairus is there sticking up for his daughter. This woman has no one to stick up for her. And Jesus goes and says, you are my daughter. He calls her daughter. He redefines her identity in that moment. It's a beautiful thing about suffering that I don't want to embrace, but it really brings forward what we're placing our identity in, doesn't it? As I mentioned, I spoke in May, and one of the things I mentioned when I spoke then was that my mom has been dealing with Parkinson's disease and dementia over the last year. And it's progressively gotten worse. And um, I've been helping a couple days a week to go over and take care of her. And one day, not long ago, I was helping put her down for a nap. And every now and then, she'll, her eyes will connect with my eyes. And in the moment her eyes connected with my eyes, she said, I hope when I'm gone, people will remember me as someone who loved Jesus. And I said, Mom, there's no way they couldn't. And maybe the whole reason I'm sitting up here uh, this morning is just as a testimony to that, that uh, she is someone who loves Jesus. And her identity, what she has placed her identity in all her life, has now started to bubble to the surface in this season of intense suffering for her. Um, and that's one of the things that suffering does, is it brings our, where we're placing our identity to the surface. Well, this passage also goes on in, to teach us other things about suffering. Let me finish up here. Read the rest of the passage. Because if you're not careful, you forget about Jairus in the middle of this, right? If I'm in his position, I'm fighting mad right now because this lady has just distracted Jesus from getting to my daughter. And here he goes. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion and with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him, and he went out where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha ka'um, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Here's, I think, as we end this passage together, what this tells us. Suffering is an opportunity for God to shine through us. Suffering is an opportunity for God to shine through us. What do I mean by that? I think there's a couple aspects to this passage that 
um, we can see that in. First of all, in the life of Jairus, who's experiencing suffering in this moment. He has put his faith in Jesus. Now, I'm not sure why, and, and we don't know what he really even believes about Jesus in this moment, other than he's probably heard Jesus preach, he's probably seen Jesus heal people, and maybe, just maybe in this moment, he's thinking that Jesus is a prophet. And so he thinks back into his mind to 2 Kings, where Elisha the prophet raises a child from the dead, and he thinks, maybe this prophet can do the same thing for my daughter. But whatever the thing is, he's moving forward with Jesus, placing his faith, even when it's difficult, even when he can't see the outcome of it, he moves with Jesus to his home. Other people mocking, other people laughing, him walking with Jesus. He's a living example of what it looks like to walk through suffering and to trust in Jesus. And then the other side of that was hope. But not only in the life of Jairus do we see that, so that when we're going through suffering, our lives, if we have received comfort, can be a comfort to other people. But we see this in the lives of the disciples as well. Why would Jesus bring the disciples, his inner core, Peter, James, and John, why would he bring them with him to heal this girl? He didn't have to, right? But I think there's an intentionality behind what Jesus does. Because as I mentioned before, Jesus had just brought them through a storm. They had just received comfort from Jesus. And so Jesus wants them to internalize, the comfort that I have given you is not just for you. You're to extend that to others as well. I want you to be a part of this. And, and Jesus wants to set an example for this inner core group of disciples who will end up leading the future church. And he wants to say to them, we don't run away from suffering, we run to people who are suffering. And he wants that to be the defining thing for them. That we don't run away from the suffering, we run to the suffering. And in a sense, that's what he wants them to internalize in their lives. So, my hope is over the, this discussion, as, as, as I talk about this, the picture starts to get a little clearer for us. That the idea of suffering becomes not something we have to run away from necessarily. I'm not saying we run into suffering in our own lives because there's so much suffering around, you don't have to make it up, right? There's so much suffering around. I think of the people in my life right now, just in my sphere, who are suffering right now. I know people who are going through cancer right now. I know people whose marriages are breaking up right now. I know people who have gone through divorce right now. I know people who have suffered abuse, who are going through physical pain on a daily basis right now. I, I don't have to make this up, but at the same time, I don't have to ignore it either. And my hope is that as, as we realize this might be a way for God to not only speak to me, but use me, we'll see God do amazing things as maybe we see our faces within the picture. We see the people in our lives within the picture. 
But most importantly, in this picture of suffering, we see Jesus. Because Jesus knows what it's like to suffer. Jesus has suffered more than any of us could ever imagine. He, he left heaven to, to walk with us, to suffer with us, and to die for us. And ultimately, he rose from the grave to say, I have the power over suffering. He is there with us in the here and the now. And because this rooted experience is more than just about knowledge, what I'm going to encourage you to do today takes you beyond knowledge. It takes us as a congregation beyond just knowing things about God into experiencing things with God. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do this week, and myself included, okay? I'm not leaving myself out of this. What if everyone within Browncroft, people here, people online right now, what if all of us reached out to one person this week who we know is suffering, and everybody knows somebody who's suffering this week? Everybody, one person that we know is suffering. So what I'm going to ask you to do is today, Monday, Tuesday, ask God to reveal who he has placed in your life, who is really suffering, who you feel like he wants you to reach out to. And then on Wednesday, we're going to do something we call We Care Wednesday as a, as a church family. We're on Wednesday, we're going to have hundreds of us reaching out to just one person who's suffering. That could be a person within Browncroft, outside of Browncroft, it doesn't matter. One person who's suffering. And, and reaching out to them with the love of Jesus. I love how Paul puts it. We comfort others with the comfort that we've received. If we've, if we've received comfort from God, we should be able to extend that same comfort for others. And some of you are like, John, great, I'm, a, I'm all ready to go. Let's, let's do this. I don't need any more framework. Some of you are like, John, could you give me some details to this? How does this work? For all of you who like details, here's, how I would, here's, here's some ways that I would express it. First of all, what we're asking you to do is be present. Be present with the person that you're reaching out to. Now, for some of us, that's going to mean physical presence. For some of us, that's not going to be possible. That's okay. But what I'm asking you to do is be emotionally present regardless to whoever it is that you're reaching out to. That means putting aside your phone. That means not checking on social media when you're with them. That means giving that person your undivided presence. Second, listen. Our culture is so obsessed with talking, aren't we? And sometimes when we're with somebody who's suffering, we feel like we have to be the, the answer to their problems, right? I have to, I have to give you the, the advice to solve it. And most of the time, that's about our own anxiety more than it is about that person. Here's what I've come to discover. People equate being listened to with being loved, especially in our culture right now. So what I'm asking you to do is just listen. Listen to their story of suffering. And finally, if the opportunity presents itself, pray. 
pray. And, I, and, and some of you are like, that, that is weird. I don't know how to pray. Let me tell you, none of the prayers in this passage are extremely eloquent, okay? They're not, they're not fancy prayers. And sometimes the greatest prayer you can pray is simply Jesus' help. And just to go alongside of someone else and say, Jesus, will you please help? I'm excited about what it would look like for a church to engage in this together for an entire week together, reaching out to people who are suffering, following the example of Jesus and allowing him to enlighten our lives and enlighten the lives of the people around us. Let's pray. Dear God, we are thankful, Jesus, that you entered this world and you suffered alongside of us. And Lord, you invite us to identify not with the things that this world would identify with, but identify with our relationship with you. Lord, if there are people listening here, listening online, who have never experienced you in their lives, Lord, and, and, and they're at the place right now where they're like, Jesus, I need you. I just pray that in this moment, they would just surrender control of their life to you. And Lord, for those of us who have made that decision, who have said, Jesus, here's my whole life, it's all yours. Jesus, will you allow us to have the courage to follow you to the scary places, to follow you to people who are suffering, not to run away, and to give us the, the courage, the hope, the peace that comes when we do that and follow you. Thank you, Lord. We just bring this week before you. I bring these people before you. We ask that we would give you everything we have in Jesus' name. Amen.